Hi, welcome to episode 17 of Sparks of Madness. Um, in this episode, I chat with AJ Hill, uh, a comedian who is based in uh, Didsbury now, in Manchester. Um, and we had a really good chat about uh, various aspects of the industry, really, using comedy as therapy and when that can go too far, the potentially dangerous and heady mix of um, travelling to gigs alone and having an over-reliance on alcohol as a as a self-medicating technique, um, something that AJ quite openly speaks about, um, and also um, the need, perhaps, for the comedy industry to um, look to itself, um, to look after itself better in terms of mental health. There's a lot happening in the industry at the moment about um, COVID, um, people working safely, about Me Too and and the, the need for um, acts who are not straight white men to be better protected by peers in the industry and by the industry itself. But there isn't necessarily a lot going on in terms of looking after comedians' mental health at a time when, um, really, it's potentially quite precarious for a lot of comedians. I know that what's happened to a lot of comedians since the pandemic started is a lot of them have lost significant amounts of money and income, but also have started to live quite secluded lives for a lot of comedians their daily existence pre-covid would have been um getting out and about on the circuit and that would have been their main um contact with the wider world outside of their whatever their family unit may be and for a lot of comics they don't have the safety net that that other people do of still having a work environment to be involved with day-to-day throughout COVID. So although gigging seems to be coming back, we know that rules keep changing and start to tighten and then loosen and then tighten. Um, But for those acts who maybe live alone, who've lost significant chunks of income, who don't know what the future holds, are we doing enough to look after them? So we talk about that as well. So it's quite a serious conversation, but as usual, quite lighthearted. We have, we, you know, we do have a few giggles. Um, I think you'd enjoy it. Um, so please listen and enjoy my chat with AJ Hill, episode seventeen of Sparks of Madness. Thank you. Okay, um, welcome to uh, episode 17 of Sparks of Madness, and this week my guest is uh, AJ Hill. How are you doing, AJ? I'm well, how are you? I'm really good, thanks. Um, I'm, uh, I'm I'm buzzing a little bit because comedy seems to be creeping back. Um, it so it I, is. I um, yeah, yeah I, I went to a gig on, on Saturday to watch, so I went to a, um, Punks in Drublick, uh, which is a, a gig run by Rob Stevenson, which is in... Um, in the Manchester, Greater Manchester area, so he runs it in various locations, and yeah, that was an outdoor gig at a brewery, so that was a it was very interesting. Sort of having someone do temperature checks at your at your face when you sort of go to a gig. It, it, I always think, imagine if that's the way you find out that you've got coronavirus by going to like a comedy <laughs> gig and someone's got a, a temperature gun in your face. You're like, oh god. Yeah, it's a, it's been a bit. It's just been a weird six month period, and now it feels like some normality is coming back. My fear is that. I just hope it isn't a false dawn. Um, but, yeah, some gigs are coming back. I had my first gig uh, on Monday, which was, you know, small numbers, 30 people in a lovely little bar in Halifax. But it was just fantastic. It was lovely. 
So was it was it um, out, was it an outdoor gig? Yeah, it was sort of half and half. It was we were originally going to do it outdoors, but the the space outdoors, the the noise that would have been required to have a generator there, would have just drowned out the the, the noise from the the performers. And also, it turned really cold on Monday, and we were like, well, people are just going to fuck off. So, but because we'd limited the numbers to thirty, and that was like the legal limit, we had the the plan B was just move it all indoors, socially distance the, the tables out anyway, and also, it's a it's a tiny little bar where the full the full sort of shop front, if you like, is like French windows or whatever you want to call them, where they can just have the whole thing open to the air. So we as performers were right on this sort of almost in the beer garden at the front, performing into the the bar. Um, but it was lovely. It was great. I mean, I, I was emceeing and I just sort of started the gig by saying, I'm not going to talk for a couple of minutes. I'm just going to drink this in because it feels like it's been too long kind of thing. It was, it was really nice. And all of the, all of the acts that were on, we only had four acts on. They were all uh, like either one or two gigs back in having just dipped the toe in the water. So everyone was a little bit rusty, but happy to be there. And, you know, it just felt like, um, it was really, um, I sound like a soppy old fart now, but it was kind of a, quite a joyful really. So I'm chuffed. I'm absolutely chuffed. But I'm hoping, like I said, that it's not a false dawn because I think that some people if might have their hopes really high and then if it gets locked down again, which I don't think will happen now, but it could knock people for six. But how have you coped during lockdown then? Well, my, my lockdown's been a, a very interesting uh, endeavour. So um, I got evicted from my house um, that I'd lived in for nine years because the, uh, the landlord... Yeah. Yeah, so we had we were having some tenancy issues with uh, people changing over, and then they basically whacked us with an eviction notice, and then said we could stay if we wanted to pay an extra thirty six percent. But the guy that I was living with, um, he basically lost his mind, <laughs> and like, right. his, and he was getting aggressive and violent towards me. So I was like, I am not staying here. So uh, I'm now I'm now living in a lovely part of Didsbury, um, where I have an attic room to do uh, mm. comedy things. So I've set up a a desk in, in an attic, um, which is mostly used for storage. But they've said, yeah, if you, my new housemates were very lovely. have said if I want to sort of do weird and random things, then it's best if I do it in the attic. So here I am speaking to you. <laughs> to show you away up there. Yeah. So, wow. And, and have you done any of the, because there's been sort of myriad online gigs and stuff happening throughout. Have you done any of that stuff or have you been putting out pre-recorded content or have you just stayed quiet? From that um, so, yeah, I am. Um, I saw James Acaster and Nish Kumar do a uh, an online stand up gig without an audience, and yeah. uh, they were they were funny, but they looked like they were finding it a bit of an odd and a bit an odd experience and a bit of a struggle. Mm. And my thoughts are, you know, if those guys are sort of struggling yeah. to uh, do a few things, then I I don't really want to get involved because my you've not seen my act. So my act is I'm a I'm a prop comedian. Um, yeah. And I, I like to basically it's a lot of crowd work. So I, I, I engage with the audience and I basically my whole idea is to get adults to behave like children. And I love doing that. And so I can't I haven't figured out a way to do that with like a, a gig where you're yeah. not allowed to interact with the audience whatsoever. So um, I sort of I have done pre-recorded things um, that have gone out at various gigs. So um, an actor called Mark Grimshaw, he's been doing a lot of um, yeah shows and stuff um, for raising money for the autistic society and things like that. So I, uh, I've i been doing some pre-recorded stuff for him. I think he's got some things going out uh, either this Friday or next Friday, um, yeah. which would be good. Um, yeah, he's been quite active like that, hasn't he? Which he is has, yeah, he has been quite active, which is funny because he, just before lockdown, he was like, I'm quitting, I'm done with the comedy circuit, I'm not doing anything again. And then all of a sudden, as soon as they're like, yeah, Mark, you can now do comedy without seeing anybody, he's like, yes, let's get it. <laughs> Get on the go. Mark's one of those though that he he quits comedy two or three times a week, doesn't he? Mm. So 
Um, he's lovely, but he does. Um, I don't know if it's it's possibly partially his autism, but also just he's a bit of a, a bit of a, a, a raging kind of guy, isn't he? Ra- rails against the industry, um, and then and we and everyone who knows him just sort of rips him a bit for it, don't they? You know, yeah. Well, oh, you're quitting again, Mark. You know, the thing is, he's he's usually quite right about most of the issues and oh, things absolutely. that he raises. It's just the way he goes about it. It's just like please. he burns a lot of bridges a lot yeah, of the time. Like... Like, I'm going to try and get him on at some point because I think he'd be fascinating to talk to. He is a fascinating um, guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and he's he's very he's a very good comedian, but like you say, he he um he tries to fix all of the industry's ills by himself, and uh, and and normally just ends up sort of having a bit of a rant and, and yeah, well, the way the way he tries to fix it, he just calls people out on his Facebook page, and you're like, oh, yeah. God. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's, it's tricky. Um, so um, so how long have you been performing for then? So I have been performing comedy for nearly six years now. Woof, right. <laughs> doesn't feel like it but yeah um i've been performing up and down the, the country to tens of people um for uh <laughs> for that length of time and do you still have a day job or is this it is this your your life well um so i i got made redundant about two years ago and then mm. i decided to try and sort of go my own way because i've been working in lots of office jobs that i hated and that hated me generally because i uh I'm the kind of, I'm not, a, I'm a very intelligent person. I'm the kind of person that an employer wants in the business, but they don't like my personality because I, I do, I basically do a bit of a Mark Grimshaw where I sort of rail against their things that I see as wrong and I point it out to them. And generally, as we find with Mark Grimshaw, that if you just point out people's flaws and faults and faults with the system, the people in charge don't really like you doing that. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I basically have been doing freelance work for the past few years and uh, I've been trying to make it as a uh, stand-up comic rather unsuccessfully um which has been good fun i um yeah i i sort of last year i i made quite a bit of money from comedy believe it or not um so that was good um quite a chunk of my income came from stand-up itself but um yeah yeah i see the comedy circuit's really weird because like what happens is you sort of you go into it and you go oh you get everything's called progression so you get progression gigs so like yeah. the thing about progression gigs is when you get a progression gig where you get paid you think, well this is it now like i've got a progression gig i've i've, I've got a paid gig with a, a reputable promoter this is me now on my way to sort of like earning yeah. income and getting on live at the apollo or whatever it is that people think sort of happens but actually like you you do one progression gig and it just goes nowhere and you've got to it's, you're it, back at the open mics the next yeah, week. Yeah, exactly. Next week you're back yeah. at the open mics or, or you have a slew of gigs. Like I've done it before, like last summer, I was getting loads and loads of paid work and then by the time sort of like October, November had rolled around, my sort of paid work completely dried up and you're like, oh God, like back to yeah. this again. It's, it's just sort of, it's very, it's not quite the straight line that it's sort of, it is portrayed to be, you know? So, um, yeah, that, yeah. I saw, um, it's not, not quite the same, but I saw someone in a, another creative freelance industry, um, on social media this week saying, that, um, they've, uh, they've, they've, they've climbed the ladder from the area of their business. I think they were a writer, the area of their business where they would work for free to gain experience to the area of the business where they can't get paid by their prospective employers because they're too experienced, but they didn't really have anything in the middle. And I think that sometimes you yeah. can find that with with comedy. There's some grey areas where you can almost be seen as, I don't want to say too good, but maybe too established or too um, polished for open mic nights where maybe the, the, the balance between, like if you went and did an open mic night, 
the difference between you and a, and a novice is going to be obvious to anyone because you've been going for six years and you you, you know you know you've you've crafted your act without over that time but then promoters who you might see yourself as worthy as of, of opening their gig for x hundred couple hundred quid on a saturday night or whatever um are going to be like no he's not ready and, and there sometimes isn't a massive middle ground i think after lockdown having talked to a couple of local promoters i think that that middle ground might grow because i think that the sorts of venues that are going to be able to put on gigs that are viable are small to mid-sized venues where you do what i did on monday you put four acts on you pay your headline you pay your opening you have a couple of middles that are doing it for nothing um for progression um and and the fees aren't going to be huge, but there'll be enough that there's those people who are somewhere in the middle might have a bit more to, to kind of um, get their teeth into, I think. So I hope that, first of all, obviously we all hope that comedy survives. I think it will. There's always going to be a place for it. Uh, but I think that that middle level where maybe it was a little bit of a chasm before might, there might be a bit more there, but I don't know. I don't know. Uh, we will see. Well, this is the this um, is this is the thing that's actually been making me chuckle of late. So, um, I I used to like like you. I used to run gigs in the manner that you sort of run, where you have like a paid mm. opener, a paid headliner, and then like two open spots in the middle. Yeah. And uh, I got quite. I got occasionally. I got a bit of pushback from like pro acts who were like, "Well, your fees, your fees are really low. You know, your fees are, are really low." And and my response to that would be like, "Well." The bar is giving me what they can give me, and for the bar, yeah. I am their most expensive like entertainment night, which they put on. So, like for them, yeah. for the bar, like their overheads, I am their most expensive night that they are putting on, and they are willing to do that because they love the acts that I bring and stuff like that. So, I am giving the circuit what I can. Mm. But you get loads of products who are complaining, and then since lockdown, when all the um, garden They're gigs and open air gigs, gigs. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, I've just done an open mic gig; it was brilliant, or I've just gone yeah, down yeah, to yeah. Swansea for thirty quid, and you're like. Well, what like yeah. you guys were it was fantastic and you're like yeah but you were criticizing and, and people for doing that previously what what's funny about that as well is though that much like at the top level of the industry even low level promoters like myself will talk to other guys you know and i'll talk to guys in the midlands or nearby me and we've been saying bloody hell i can't believe that so-and-so has applied for for this gig or so-and-so has applied for that gig or whatever or i've managed to get this guy so you know i've got someone um headlining for me soon that would never normally entertain gigging on a Thursday night for the money that they're being offered um, I didn't approach them, they applied for the gig fine, and you know, some people who have been quite visible throughout lockdown and even, you know, have even managed to because of their innovations during lockdown are gigging for you know 20-30 quid like you say, is, is bizarre I don't think that will last, that's just them for now trying to claw back some income but I think that come New Year they'll it will write itself well, it, it as is, much as it can, it yeah. is one of the reasons why I haven't I haven't actually applied to perform on a gig yet, uh, mm. because like when the sort of outdoor gigs came back, the I saw several posts of like, oh, we just had Russell Howard, just had Russell Howard come down to perform for forty quid, or you just had like Russell Kane yeah, come down yeah. to perform for forty quid. You're like, well, no one's going to pay me forty quid to perform comedy if like well, that was that's it. the level of acting I'm get, getting. You know? If you get tagged in as well, because I've said this a couple of times to people who might be listening on in comedy, most comedy at our level works on Facebook, and you'll get people who see a gig and they'll think, oh, AJ will be perfect for that, and they'll tag you in, and then you'll go, yeah, but I know who else is going to apply. Yeah. So what's the point? You know, I saw, I got tagged into, or I got sent last night, uh, someone sent uh, an opening spot. Um, and I was just like, mate, that's a, that's a gig with a presti- relatively prestigious promoter. They're offering a hundred quid for an opening spot when a lot of places are opening hundred quid to close them. 
<laughs> I'm not going to get a look in if I apply for that. And I've, you've got to be realistic. You don't want to become across like a deluded. You know, it's it's really tricky. But you also want to back yourself. It's it's a weird industry like that. It is. It is. It is difficult because um, yeah, I, I've I've got quite a lot of friends who've been going less time than me, and they're getting mm. gigs that I haven't applied for. And they're like, well, why haven't you applied for that gig? And I'm like, well, you know, I don't feel it's it's at my level. And they go, well, that's I I feel that you're a better comic than me. And like. Some people do say that, folks, by the way. Uh, yeah. occasionally, occasionally people say that to me and they go, and you should be applying for that. And I'm like, oh, all right, okay, well, that's fine. But, you know, I guess that's a self-esteem issue. So we're talking about mental health. Like a lot yeah. of comics have yeah. low mental health, uh, you know, low self-esteem and poor mental health. And I, I'm a person who suffers from you know, low self-esteem. So I struggle to, I also I hate, bigging myself up is i'm not very good at self-promotion is one thing You're like that's the sort of one thing yeah. that a comic really needs to be good at like you need to be it's good quite at common though yeah it is quite common to, to, and i see that other, so i'm relatively my, my self-esteem takes a knock quite often but at the same time I, I manage to quite often be quite pragmatic about where to pitch myself and i think generally i kind of get it roughly right Sometimes I'm probably I am I do err on the side of caution. Or I'd rather I'd rather not apply for a gig I could have got than apply for one I could have got in a year's time and then and ruin that chance. If you know what I mean. Well, um, this but is I some... see people who just won't push themselves, and you think I've spoken to. There's a couple of actors around here who have kind of I've said, "Are you when are you when are you thinking of going? When are you going to give up your day job? When are you going to do that?" And they're like, "Oh, I just don't think I can." And you think, "But you are." That you talked about by the sort of local critics or local bookers in such high regard that if you actually put some kind of gusto behind promoting yourself, surely you could turn that corner. But I understand why people don't, especially people maybe who I mean, I'm I'm in my forties, I've got a mortgage and kids and stuff. It would be a massive leap for me to go fully pro, and I hope to do it in the years to come. But it would, it's just a big a big risk, I suppose. Well, I um, mean, the thing the thing that you learn like when you, you talk to a lot of pro acts who are full-time comics, um, like uh, there's, there's one guy that I had a car share with and he was just explaining the logistics of it. And basically he'd been working a part-time job. So he'd been working a part-time job in a call center from like Tuesday to Tuesday to Thursday, he was working a, a part-time, no, in fact, no, sorry, Monday to Wednesday, he was working a part-time job. And then Thursday and Fridays, he had off to go and perform comedy mm. basically. And he was earning a lot of money doing that. And then when he decided to go fully pro, <laughs> Like basically, he lost a lot of income, and you also lose the safety net. So he was like, it's, it's, yeah. "I'm enjoying not having to go into a day job that I hate, but also this is a massive struggle and a massive strain." Yeah. He was like, "I was, I used to be coming home with two, three grand a month, and now I'm coming home with like a grand and a half. You know, my sort of my earnings have gone down in half." So, so going from that leap of sort of being at a professional level but working another job uh, to being fully a full-time comedian can be a leap. And also the other thing, this is, I guess, I guess this is the other thing about progression that they, you sort of learn that like with a lot of comics, uh, they sort of, they don't just go pro and then stay sort of a full-time comic. They dip in and out of sort of doing teaching mm. jobs and things like that. And especially now um, they've sort of gone from, you know, there's, there's a few people that I've heard that, you know, mega sort of mega star comics. who have sort of taken day jobs to sort of, get yeah. by because there's just no money coming in so yeah yeah tricky times so you mentioned about having low self-esteem issues what's your general if you just summed up your mental health to someone uh, what's your kind of what are your what are your issues what are your conditions or what, what are your labels what are my labels so um i have a general anxiety disorder and i suffer from depression um i've got a thing called a negative thought spiral so what happens is i get a th- 
a bad thought about myself and then have another bad thought that reinforces that, have another bad thought mm-hmm. that reinforces that, and then it just goes on and on and on. So um, I, I had a, a counsellor once who gave me some uh, some tips on how to break that, which is largely just just try and be a bit kinder on yourself. <laughs> Go for walks. <laughs> yeah. Well, all of that really concrete advice. <laughs> well, no, she was fantastic, but the, the problem with the NHS yeah. is, like, I, I so I went to see her, because I was feeling suicidal after a breakup that I had, so I went to see yeah. I went to see see them. Then after six months, they got me onto sort of being with this woman, and she booked me in for like six sessions. So I went to my first session and started talking to her, and she was like, "Yeah, I, uh, I'm sort of I'm doubling these at least." <laughs> and she sort of, yeah. I, I ended up having like fourteen sessions in the end because she was like, "Yeah, you you definitely need more than just six. There's something wrong with you that we need to sort of pick through." <laughs> so like, she's like, "All oh, right, okay." Didn't think it was that bad. And, and when when was that? How long ago was that? So that was in two thousand and two thousand and sixteen. That was so yeah, that was in summer of two thousand sixteen that I had those counselling sessions, sort of spring right. summer, um, just before just before my first Edinburgh gig. So I, I'd split up with my ex in two thousand and fifteen, and basically struggled on, and just my mental health had just been deteriorating quite rapidly. Um, yeah, I'm just, I, and since since that counselling, have you been on more of an even keel, or uh, it fluctuates? It fluctuates badly, so I, I recognise my issues much more than I, I used to. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I am prone to depression and lethargy and sort of like low self esteem. So I sort of with gigs or anything, even like even just sort of getting freelance work, I'll talk talk myself out of work because I'm like, well, I'm not good enough to do that, and it's it's a sort of it's a terrible cycle um but yeah Mm. you know um the thing about comedy and it's a it's a blessing and a a curse in some respects is that you can hide from your issues in comedy but they can also exacerbate those issues so Mm. um like i'd started doing comedy sorry go on yeah i was just gonna say when you say that they can exacerbate those issues is that something that you find happens a lot or is it just the odd sort of flare up for want of a better term or well, um, yeah, I mean, so, so for me, like I, uh, with comedy, like when I got made redundant, I was like, well, I'm just going to concentrate on doing comedy and I can make it. And every time you get paid 50 quid or a hundred quid, you're like, this is going to, this is going to work out. And, and like yeah. your finances can be in complete disarray and you're just like, no, no, I'm going to, I'm going to make it big if I just pl- keep plugging away. Um, it's, it's, it, you know, it's, it's one of those things like when I first split up with my ex, um, I basically started gigging where I'd been gigging like twice a month, three times a month, because that's just after I'd first started, I ended up basically sort of going to gigs four or five times a week. And yeah. like, one thing about comedy is that like, especially when you're an open mic act, you just get, they just give you booze. They give you a few pints of booze. And what that does is that encourages them to buy more booze. Once you're two pints in, you're like, just a bit thirsty, just a bit thirsty. Yeah. I'll have another one. And then, uh, so I went from basically being somebody who's sort of, binge drinking once or twice a week to being someone who was binge drinking sort of four or five well more than five nights a week and the problem with that is that like because you're doing comedy and you're going to gig to gig to gig to gig to gig you're not drinking with the same people so like no one's really keeping track of your sort of substance abuse as it were and like yeah, no know, one's there to call you on it no one's yeah. there to, exactly no one's there to call you on it and you're not really there to call it on yourself because everybody in comedy well most people in comedy sort of drinks it's a big you know drinking culture in comedy is massive so it's sort of um 
it's you know it's hard to gauge when you when you're around a lot of people who are abusing alcohol and probably sort of self medicating with it. It's very hard to sort of go you know, well, like this is normal. Like, yeah. of course this is normal. Yeah. We're all the weirdos at the back of the uh, back of the room waiting for our turn on stage. You know? <laughs> um, and how long did that sort of last for then? When you would be sort of you know drinking to excess and gigging to that extent? Well, I mean, to be honest with you, like uh, my substance abuse with with alcohol has sort of lasted the last six years so like it's it's it fluctuates i still drink more than i should but it goes through stages where i don't drink as much as i i used to um yeah once i once i got made redundant and sort of was the the master of my own destiny as it were like my drinking really ramps up so like you know and it happens like it's just one of those things about comedy like drinking in comedy is so sort of ingrained and normalized that you know there are literally if you haven't got to get up for your day job in the morning as well well exactly so you just you mm-hmm. just carry on drinking i mean like there was sean hughes wasn't there it's was like sean hughes was yeah. a, a comic back in the day and then 2017 he sort of drank himself to death so you know um mm-hmm. it's tricky i remember when i because i've only been going coming up to two years and i and the one thing that, that i struggled with with comedy was the post gig kind of if you like the come down because i drive to most of my gigs yeah. um so I, at most I'll have a pint of piss weak beer um, at the gig, and that's normally after I've been on just as a, almost as a thirst quencher and, and knowing that I'm going to be legally safe to drive. Um, and then I'll get home and I'm still quite wired from. Cause I, I, generally, at most of the gigs I do, I'm either emceeing or I'm on late on or something like that. So I'm quite wired up and, and buzzing. And I get home and I'm like, I can't get a bed yet. And so, and and I I remember putting out on Facebook, you know, um, just you know, com- comedian friends, what do you do when you can't sleep after a gig? And the response from nearly nearly a hundred percent of the responses were either, you know, have a have a drink, have a scotch or something, or you know, light up a joint, or there were, it was all sort of chemical requirements of you know, just chilling out rather than just, you know, just watch, watch a bit of TV for half an hour and nod off kind of thing. Um, so I think you're right. I think there's an endemic in the industry is most people are either sober or or at the other end of the scale at some de- to some degree. Well, when, um, I a, when I had a full-time office job, it was awful because, like you say, you get, you get back from gigging and you're, you're so pumped up and your adrenaline's coursing through your veins. Yeah. So you're like, well, I need to... I need to drink this away or I need to do something. So like I, you know, I'd be drinking at the gig, I'd get home and I'd have another beer. I'd stay up till three o'clock in the morning and then you've got to be in work at nine. So you like, you go to yeah. work and you're hung over and you've had no sleep. And again, like a lack of, this is another thing. A lack of sleep is, uh, mm. you know, terrible for your mental health. So like, you know, absolutely a decent amount of sleep's really good. You know, um, have you been up to uh, Edinburgh to perform? I haven't yet. I was, I was hoping to get up, um just this year just to have i've never been to the fringe i've never i'm not that much, i'm not a sort of a comedy nerd or anything like that and and uh my wife's a teacher so the summer holidays are kind of sacrosanct for us but this year i was hoping to get up for sort of three or four days just to drink it in a bit and maybe get on a few guest spots if i could and then obviously it all got knocked on the head but well, I, drink, I have drink. heard tales of the you know the Kind of the 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 toll Edinburgh can take on someone's liver. Well, I was going to say drinking it is correct because you're basically up on holiday <laughs> with your fifty most alcoholic mates. It's uh, yeah, it's yeah, uh, dangerous. Like, uh, yeah, well, the first time I went was in 2016. So um, as I said, my ex left me, and uh, she left me for a guy who dresses like a pirate. So I wrote a uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jesus. Exactly. So I was like, well, 
I know I'm new to comedy, but I've got to write a show about that, and I don't want to sort of be writing it in three or four. When well, you say he dresses like a pirate, you mean just he just dresses like a pirate? He doesn't have a reason to. No, he, yeah, he was he was in a band, so he was in a band called right. Psych- Psychedelic Pirates. Um, shout out to them that no longer exist, and uh, so he's in this band, and um, they dress like pirates. So I was like, well, that's ridiculous. So I, I wrote this whole sort of Edinburgh show, which I I, I ran with a, a friend of mine called Tom Short, who's also a comedian. Yeah. Um, and so I took that up. Um, and A, I uh, was not at a level or prepared to sort of write that show. So that was a massive, <laughs> talking about mental health, it was a massive stress. B, I had a, I had a, a comic that I knew who um, is a very successful comic now, but he, uh, at the time, he was fairly new and he just kept messaging me every day going, why are you doing this, mate? <laughs> why are you doing this? I'm like, well, stop, stop asking me these questions, pal. Like, I, no, I know why I'm Is that an impression? It. Is that an impression? A little bit, like, not, not too much. I'm trying to work out who it might be, but I've got an idea. I, okay, I, I'll ask I, you afterwards. I I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do that. I, it's not it's not something I would do. And you're like the more that you're saying this, the more I'm, you're putting self doubt <laughs> in my mind. And I, I've paid up. I've paid up. I can't not do it now. So like you're like, well, maybe this is a big mistake. But I'm I'm all locked in. Like I've got the venue sorted. I've got my accommodation booked. I can't get out of it. And like yeah, when when I got up there. So you were talking about doing like a few spots up in Edinburgh. Well, yeah. my, my first year in Edinburgh, I was doing six to six to eight spots a day and, and yeah. my own, and my own show on top of that. And I basically, by the time I got out of the other end, I, just, I had actual burnout. Like I was exhausted nil. Yeah. I made myself ill for about two, two or three months afterwards. Um, it was crushing. I, I had a vocal hemorrhage. So I was, I was doing a gig in Doncaster and it was race week. Mm-hmm. And all these, uh, all these like coked up lads had been to Doncaster races, and they were like, "Woo!" woo. And uh, I used to finish my set with an operatic song. So, uh, and the monitor, the sound was only coming out of the monitors, not the speakers. So only I could hear myself. So I decided to sort of sing louder than them. I sort of sing over the din, and I burst a, a blood vessel in my vocal cords and lost my, uh, lost my voice completely. So, uh, it yeah, it w- it wasn't good. But yeah, like Edinburgh can be exhausting like absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. exhausting you know yeah. i wonder if it's in a way if it's one of those uh, next year it'll either come back like nothing's happened or there might be a bit of a reset on it and it might be go back to sort of kind of a slightly more you know sensible levels of of gigging and stuff like that because it, it does feel like you know from the outside looking in and i suppose i've got a foot in both camps having not been it just feels like so, it must be overload you know to be there yeah it's um, just it's just yeah it, it's chaos so like um i've never done a full run i've only ever done half runs so that's like two weeks i've, I've done two weeks yeah. as i said i made myself sick for for um three two or three months after after my first edinburgh the next year that i went along i was doing a show and i sort of limited myself to like a maximum of four spots a day um yeah and it's just like I'm not gonna sort of push myself too much because it's just not worth it. I want to also and did you out. did you lose money? Because ninety nine percent of comics lose money as well. I always yeah. I always, I, yeah. Last year was the first time that I actually that was my first my debut hour, so I actually did a full hour show last year, and um, I broke even. So I actually broke even last year. Nice. Um, yeah, it it was nice, but um, that was the first year that I'd done that. All the other years, I just treat it like it was a holiday, a working holiday, yeah. and just like spaffed all my money up the wall and sort of dealt with the yeah. consequences later yeah. on because sort of. i remember speaking to rich wilson at one of my first ever gigs and he was saying you can go to edinburgh and make money but you've just got to be really savvy about you know where you're staying what you're doing if you're just going up there to 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 gig and get shit faced then you'll lose money um 
So I think it's like sort of, I suppose it's that thing of if you're a seasoned act and you're going up there with almost a bit of a business plan in mind, you can you can make some money and not and also not kill yourself in the process. But then there's also a load of acts I know that deliberately avoid Edinburgh and hoover up all of the regional acts that people aren't available for because they're in Edinburgh. Well, <laughs> so all my... of the spots that are you know, available sort of in Yorkshire and further south. So I did that in 2015, yeah. So in 2015, mm. my, so I was like still in my first year of comedy. Like I, uh, I didn't go to Edinburgh because um, I didn't feel I was ready. I wasn't ready at all. And um, you stay sort of in England and then all of a sudden like there's all these like gigs available on like pro gigs that weren't available to myself at that mm. time that just became available. They're like, well, we, you know, all the promoters like, well, we just need acts. Like it's kind of like now you're like, we need, uh, I guess, well, it's a bit different now, but like, you can, yeah, it's it's the opposite to now. Now that it's, you know yeah. all the acts are available, going, I'll do whatever gig you've got. Whereas at the, at the time they're like, well, we just need acts, so like you know, supply and yeah, demand. You need someone who can stand up and and walk in a straight line and speak yeah. out loud, yeah. speak to people so, who are sort of yeah. in the audience here. So, so you, you talked about sort of your drinking. And you kind of described it to to being problematic, and obviously, it sounds like from your point of view that's intrinsically linked to your mental health, which won't come as a surprise to anyone who's listened to any of the other podcasts we've done where drinking's been an issue is that uh, you're still drinking so you're not sort of abstaining you're not you're not um sort of in sobriety or in a program or anything like that no i, I, that, I, I probably look- wouldn't i probably wouldn't join a program um the truth mm. is that i i do enjoy drinking so i i mm. definitely need to cut down and um my stress responses are wrong so i have incorrect stress responses so basically when i'm stressed uh, when I get anxious, when I get nervous, I drink. That's what I do to that's what I do to calm that down. When I'm sad, I drink. Yeah. When I'm happy, I drink. So like, yeah. I, that's that's something which I'm trying to deprogram. Uh, as I said to you before we started recording this, I've just been out for a, mm. a run, which nearly yeah. killed me. <laughs> nearly killed me. Literally, like a I ran about a mile, probably just over a mile, and I was like. The reason I we started this chat late was because I was literally hyperventilating. Just going, oh my <laughs> god, I can't, can't start speaking until I've got my breath back. Like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's interesting because we, so we've had um, a couple of people on the previous episode have talked about drinking to excess, and then actually a few weeks ago, um, I was talking to a good friend of mine about um, eating uh, sort of to excess. So, so the, the sort of the, the the other side of eating disorders, um, unhealthy relationships with food to into excess, and and a lot of that you talk about stress responses, and I think that is a really key thing um i tend to in my younger days i certainly would drink like we're very much like you describe it sounds it sounds like me in my 20s to be honest um my teens in my 20s um and now i've probably replaced that with food to an extent um and it, it's just interesting so if you've had a a good gig how long does that fear that high last that you get then from your point of view so, well, Sarah Millican has this rule, doesn't she? So Sarah Millican has the 11 a.m. The 11 o'clock rule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, by the time you get to 11 a.m., no matter how good or bad the gig went the day before, like you just put that put that behind you and get on with the next thing. That is Which is not... a great idea in theory, but it's bollocks, <laughs> yeah, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That is not me. I can't I can't do that. Um, if, yeah. I have a, if I have a great gig, uh, that'll be with me for a while. I'll be with me for a while. But if I have a, if I have a terrible gig, that'll be with me for a lot longer. A lot yeah. longer. Like uh, yeah. last last year, a promoter, uh, Big Lou, Big Lou gave me a yeah. gig in a gave me a gig at um, Hull Hull Comedy Lounge, and I yeah. did I su- surprised myself and did really really well at that gig. Like it was it was a you know weekend gig and I smashed it. And he was like, "Great, I'll give you another gig." And he gave me a gig in a cricket club, and I died a 
hideous. Yeah. <laughs> like probably with the worst death that I've ever had. It was it was just brutal. The audience it was like one table out of like you know, 70 or 80 people, there was like one table in the corner that were, were finding me funny and the rest, everybody else was just staring at me, <laughs> staring at me mm. like, who, who are you? What are you doing? Because as I said, my whole act's crowd works. So if the audience don't get behind that, I was like, oh, I need to, I need to write. Like swimming through Drake, isn't it? <laughs> I need to write more actual jokes because if you're not going to go for the crowd work, what have I got to fall back on? That, like, yeah. yeah. Um, so they did not go for me at all. And that, stayed with me for months like i can't i couldn't put that behind me for forever i just dwelled on it for ages and stopped applying for like sort of similar level gigs because like you know uh, i've just got to really reassess what i'm doing here and i don't think that was the correct response really because everybody has a bad gig and you know it just, yeah that audience just yeah knee, knee-jerk it. reactions to individual gigs are, are risky i think aren't they whether and i suppose that's what millican's law as she describes it, sort of tries to deal with at either end is if you go out and, and smash a gig, it doesn't mean you're going to be on the Apollo next week. But also if you go out and down your ass, it doesn't mean you're never going to gig again. It's if I think it's that long-term trend, isn't it? If you're going out and you're dying every night, if you're bombing every night and, and there's never any redemption, then, then yeah, it's tricky. You're going to have to reevaluate. But, um, and similarly, if you're going out and you're smashing it every night, you'll soon climb up, won't you? So, but I think, yeah, it's 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 interesting. The, the the positive impacts and the negative impacts can stay with you, but the negative ones always last a bit longer. And it's that it's that old cliche as well, isn't it? Of if you're smashing a gig, but there's one person not laughing, you'll notice them, and you'll fixate on them, and you'll think, yeah, well, well, the fuck aren't you laughing, you prick?" Well, <laughs> what <laughs> I what I do in that situation is I start to include that person. Yeah, I start to focus on, like. People sort of like so. Oh, you should ignore them, and you shouldn't try. And they're the last person you should get to do crowd work with. But I, that's the that's the person that I will focus all my well, not all my attention. But that's the person I will then try and engage with and try and bring them on board. Mm. And actually, usually that starts to to work to some degree on the majority of occasions. If you've got somebody who doesn't seem to be enjoying yourself, when you actually start to engage them and involve them and try and bring them on board with the rest of the audience and make them feel that they're part of it as well, uh, that can often be successful. Sometimes a hit goes hideously wrong and you're like, okay, we're going to yeah. move on from this. But like sometimes it's a, it's a, it's a joy when you sort of manage to sort of turn someone's perception of you around while, while you're on stage. Um, but that's the, I guess yeah, that's just yeah. the, the joy about comedy. You never know how someone's going to react to what you're oh, doing. Everything's a gamble. When you, whenever you do anything like that, it's always a gamble, but it's always, for me, if you, if you're brave enough to take that gamble or stupid enough to take that gamble, you're never going to get bored doing it. Eh? <laughs> That's the other thing I think is that you're never going to, I I was trying to explain this to my wife actually, because she was sort of, she, she doesn't, A, she doesn't think I'm funny. She thinks I'm a prick. Um, but also um, she doesn't quite understand the different level of fulfillment I find from going out gigging compared to like doing a good day of work in my day job or whatever. And it's like, but the, the just that level of, enjoyment and stimulation and not knowing what's going to happen i know generally speaking if i go to my day job i can predict most of what's going to happen throughout a working month you know you, you go out for a 10 minute set and you can always have something that comes out of nowhere and throws you off and, it, and you've got to be on your toes and it's and it's never ever going to be dull and that's one of the things that i love about comedy is that you know it's never going to be the same twice it's never going to be dull and therefore, the the risk reward thing I think gives you a higher buzz. I suppose. Well, this is it. We're, um, we're all we're all adrenaline. I get we're just mm. adrenaline junkies in a different way. So you get people who sort of like do extreme sports, like base jumping, or you know, mm. Uh, mm. rock climbing, or you know, um, 
things like that, you know, free basing meth. Uh, we, uh, <laughs> as, as comics, like we, we, that adrenaline you get from just the adoration of a crowd is, is quite, it's quite a unique feeling. And like when it goes really well, like it just leaves you feeling so high and like the, you know, it's a cliche that a lot of sort of kids were, a lot of comics, sorry, were bullied as kids. Uh, I was, I know, I know most of my friends were mm. on the comedy circuit were as well. And so like, when you flip that round and you have sort of, you know, the majority of people sort of paying you attention and sort of, you know, giving you praise for what you're doing, it's it's quite a, a lovely feeling. And like, like you say, there's a certain risk there. So you're like, well, this could go all hideously wrong and they couldn't do that. So when it pays off, like it's sort of an extra dopamine hit, I guess. Like, mm. and I think mm. I was just thinking that um, Steve Martin, when Steve Martin got to the, like his A game, he quit comedy or stand-up comedy, quit stand-up comedy at the point that he was, like, smashing it. And I guess the thing for him, having read his, his autobiography, the thing I've realised realized now is that basically he didn't have any risk. There was no risk involved. Like, well, wherever he went, wherever he did, he just smashed it. Yeah, yeah. I guess he, he just couldn't go, fail. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so when you, there's not that sort of, like you say, there's not that risk-reward sort of element to that. He's just going out and going through the motions and sort of painting with broad strokes. And it must be... It must be, it must, you know, like anything, it must just get repetitive and boring, mm. I guess, if you if you mm. can't sort of spice that up. So, yeah. And without wanting to cast aspersions on Steve Martin, it's a shame then that his film career went the way that it did, where it started so well, and then it got repetitive and boring later in life. But it's, it's weird with that era of comedian, um, the ones that sort of transferred, transitioned over, I suppose, into movies, like Eddie Murphy, a lot of people slag off his film career, and then occasionally he'll come up with like a superb. Um, you know, really good tour de force. I don't know if you saw. Um, was it called Dolomite that he did the other year? Yeah, Dolomite. Um, my name it was amazing. Yeah, which was just so much better than anything he'd done that it, apart from the animated stuff for a while. And you know, Steve Martin. And, but I wonder sometimes if that's just trends or you know, again with, with that sort of industry, the film industry. Sometimes it's you get what you're given as well. Whereas with stand up, you can make it yourself. But then you get people who've been doing stand up for years and they get a bit stayed and a bit boring. Um. I suppose it ebbs and flows, doesn't it? You know, you can be of the moment, you can be on trend, and then you can be, and that's something that's happening in the moment. With, with, I mean, in the news this week, there's been this whole issue of, um, it's just been in the press the last couple of days about the BBC talking about the left-right balance in comedy on TV, which is really weird for them to talk about when they're commissioning an awful lot of the comedy that's on TV. Um, but you know, you sort of the names that people have banded around as being right wing comedians that are examples. You know, people on on social media are talking about Jim Davidson, Bernard Manning, and Lee Hurst, and you think, fucking hell, you know, it's uh, we have to we have to have come a long way since the time when those guys were were of the moment. You know what I mean? I mean, it, but the 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 balance it's an interesting one. The balance of comedy at the moment, I suppose. Most comedians are, I wouldn't say most comedians are necessarily left wing. I just think most comedians are quite tolerant and quite, and because it's a diverse industry itself, isn't it? Well, if you take, um, if you take, if you take the panel shows, I mean, Frankie mm. Boyle once said that the, he got bored of doing panel shows because it stopped, it stopped being about making jokes about the issues to just making jokes about like the headlines. So they weren't really sort yeah. of, there wasn't anything substantial for the jokes. They were just sort of a surface level, like, haha, this has happened. <laughs> oh, and, and like, you know, so I, I don't see that as like left wing comedy, as it were. I see that as more like just 
general that's just general sort of topical comedy is it doesn't matter yeah. it's not really with a political focus because obviously when there was jeremy corbyn around um you know he was getting lambasted people ripped the shit out of him all the time they? exactly you know, making jam and wearing cardigans or whatever it was and, and it's quite interesting um, that all of a sudden like right-wing comics who've been moaning about diversity quotas like are now relying on <laughs> those same diversity <laughs> quotas to get see you know you should be relying on being funny guys come on yeah well that, and i think that's the thing is that most i was trying to explain to someone the other day that we were talking about this very issue and i think that most comedy these days is either sort of not really poking fun at anyone. So if you look at, like, your, I suppose, your Tim Vine style of comedian, your one-liner style of comic, there's not really... It's very rarely a victim of those jokes. It's normally wordplay or or sort of... And I'd imagine with prop comedy, it's, it can be quite similar where the joke is... The, the humour is in the me- mechanics of the joke. And then if you've got someone who's whose material is more sort of talky and, and, and structured in terms of the, the, the words longer term like like mine is more long form kind of um anecdotal stuff it's much more comfortable for me to go on stage and joke about myself and poke fun at myself and talk about my mundane sex life and my you know my mental health and that sort of stuff and turn it around on me than it is for me to pick a, a person to aim that at and i think that's what's probably changed over comedy in the last 30 years is that the victim if there is a victim, the victim's normally the acts themselves, turning it around on themselves. But then you get people who say, I'm going to go out and say the stuff that no one will let me say. And you're saying, but well, you're going to go out and say it. <laughs> I mean, that's, but yeah. So, so when we're talking about mental health, a lot of, when you're doing open mic, a lot of right-wing, what you'd say, right-wing comics that you see, these people that will go out and say things that no one else will say, a lot of them are just like middle-aged blokes basically just mm. having a bit of a midlife crisis and just wanting to vent their awful opinions at people. And they're like, they think that the shock value of that is, is funny for them. It's like, well, you're there to amuse people, not to, mm. not to, um, not to sort of like attack them or upset them. So I guess, I guess with sort of things like mock the week, what do you want the week to be spelled double E or EA, you know, <laughs> like exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I think that's, that's the thing as well. And also if you go to most, most, comedy nights up and down the country, if you mention any of the hot political topics, you can immediately lose half the room. If you go into, if you were to say, right, tonight I'm going to talk about Brexit, half the room are going to be hoping that you're on their side, and the other half are going to have a different view and hope you're on their side, and they're not going to listen to the humour. And the same, the same with any of the so-called kind of... If you went out now and talked about Black Lives Matter, for example, which has been something that's come up on the pod before, you know, it's so divisive that... What, however good your material is, you're going to lose people. So most comedians I know don't bother now. <laughs> What's the point? Why not just go out and do a joke about how small their own penis is or something like that, you know? And 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 that's sort of how comedy seems to have changed. But I think the the weird thing is, I suppose, and where I'm driving at with this from a mental health point of view is that um, I certainly I go out and rip the piss out of myself in my material, and actually I have found that that helps me with my self-esteem because a I get laughs for it where I want to get laughs for it people are laughing with me not at me about myself but also then generally in life I kind of there's not much you can say that I haven't already said myself so I've kind of built up a barrier I don't know if you found similar stuff obviously as a prop comic it's probably a little bit different but well um, it's not it's not really I mean so one of the reasons doing prop comedy is because when I started doing comedy I wasn't a prop comic I was just like you I was going out telling jokes about my life and things like that a lot of my friends had said well you're good at sort of telling story you're a good storyteller and 
things like that. And I guess I am, but you know, everybody on the comedy circuit is is a proficient storyteller to a, a greater or lesser degree. They're all good at sort of formatting things about their lives in certain ways. So I just added the prop comedy element to start with because I wanted to stand out and I thought it was quite a, yeah. a nice way of doing it. As I said, I, I did a whole comedy show about my ex leaving me, which was a very painful experience. Mm. Um, and it really sort of degraded my mental health and low self-esteem that, you know, someone who told me that she'd love me would sort of cheat on me. So um, yeah. I just made that into a complete farcical situation where like I, I was Captain Ahab and she was like a monster. Like you know, that's basically what happened. Like, you know, at the end of that comedy show, it ended up that, you know, I was basically Captain Ahab and, and sort of brought my comedy crew, which was the audience, to the, our ruin because um, we sort of come across this world-ending en- monster. I made her into Cthulhu, hung over Cthulhu, <laughs> so that's basically what I did. But yeah, like, you know, it's just, there's just several steps back where, like, you know, I'm telling quite a serious thing in my life, but I'm just doing it in a farcical way because mm. why not? So, like, with Brexit, I the way I sort of tackled Brexit was I started pretending to be a Frenchman called Claude who's got the worst French accent in the world I was I, I did I have done actually I have done one live performance since I uh, since lockdown which was to my ex-neighbors who was a Spanish and a Turkish girl and at the end at the end of doing my set to both of them who were just looking a bit bemused at me they were like why, why are you doing an Iranian accent you're like oh okay. <laughs> right. <That shit>. <laughs> still got Excellent. it yeah yeah wonderful so the um, I th- but I think if you leave, you- I suppose what I'm getting at is if you leave yourself bare on stage, and and therefore every time you go, if you if you talk, for example, with that show in Edinburgh, every time you go on stage, to some extent, you're quite vulnerable, um, and you're make and it's self-imposed vulnerability, I suppose. It means then in it potentially in daily life that you've you've developed more. Um, mechanisms to cope with similar vulnerabilities because, you know, one person in, de- in daily life having a poppy is not going to be the same as an, an Edinburgh room full of people, for example. So I don't know. I just well, wonder whether you feel like you kind of, um, whether you find that, that getting that material out there can be quite cathartic. It can be. So it can be, but I have thought about this quite a bit because um, I made a whole Edinburgh show about my ex splitting up with me and then I had like a, a 20 minute, I guess, 10, 20 minute routine, basically, that was just the choice bits of that, of that sort of show. Um, mm. And they were my best jokes. So that then that became my set and I was going around doing those jokes. But obviously, you know, I still sometimes pull those jokes out the bag as well. But obviously, it's been five years now since I split up with that particular individual. And uh, at one point, I was like, well, actually, this isn't this isn't good for my mental health. It's, it's the opposite of I'm going out every you're night still revisiting that pain. Yeah, yeah. Every night I am revisiting the sort of like one of the most painful experiences in my life, which I'm doing that for the laughs of other people. And, uh, and it got to the point where actually it was sort of really detrimental, not cathartic, but detrimental. It was holding me mm. in a sort of in stasis where I couldn't really quite move on from this situation because I was reminding myself of it constantly. And you're like, why am I doing mm. that for, for your, you know? oftentimes early on that was like not those were unpaid gigs as well so it's like i'm not even getting paid for this i'm just going somewhere and just telling people how awful just my life is yourself up and they're going yeah. <laughs> glad i'm not you bye like, oh, great. <laughs> yeah. so looking forward then um obviously we seem to be coming out of kind of the 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 brief hiatus from live comedy is coming back. There are outdoor gigs, there are indoor gigs, there are there are various sort of forums for people to get their material out there. What's your plan? I don't know if you've got a, a 
particularly got a plan other than to gig, but have you sort of looked at the next six months or year or so about what your, your plans are? Well, it's, it's really interesting. So I've been having this conversation with lots of my friends. Uh, there's a surprisingly, there's a lot of comics that I know who are planning on quitting and never coming back or mm-hmm. planning on at least quitting the circuit and just doing their own thing. Um, which um, I've got, I've got one friend uh, who has an agent and his, his agent's like, okay, well, yeah, I know that you said you're going to quit, but they, you know, when you want to come back, we'll just start going again. He's like, no, no, I'm, I'm really done with this. I can't, you know, I can't do this anymore. It's, it's so tough. Um, mm. You know, you know, that, the whole, the whole sexual assault things that came about on the circuit. It's yeah. like, how long did that take for like people to step back and go, well, actually like everything that's happening to me on the circuit isn't right. And although I've been sort of pretending I've been having fun, I've been putting up with things that are not acceptable and that have been normalized. So it was like three months. Mm. So, you know, outside of that, that, you know, that is a serious issue. And like the, those sort of those posts and the anecdotes that sort of women came forward, female comics came forward with, were horrendous, but also in a wider scale, like we're, there's lots of things that like comics just put up with, which I think that most other people wouldn't find acceptable. I mean, like you think about all the open micers that I've met and have gone through comedy started up, with enthusiasm they started they started doing comedy with yeah. enthusiasm and very shortly they've gone well actually i really shouldn't be putting up with this i had one female still have one female friend who uh started and she was getting pretty good and then she was like i just it's just not for me it's not it's not helping my mental health i'm putting yeah. myself in situations where people are being sexist towards me and it's like why should i why should i put up with that you know and like we're a strange beast comics because they, they you know we we put up with a lot of of awful things that most people would just think is insane. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm gonna. Yeah, it can be. It could be a great industry, but it can be quite toxic as well at times. Yeah, so exactly. Well, this is it. So, I mean, it's quite interesting that um, when lockdown started, there were loads of conversations around issues on the circuit, and occasionally I'd sort of like give my two pence on a, on a matter. And there's this one sort of pro act that I, I thought I was on quite good friendly terms with, but he kept popping up and he kept like making shitty comments about me and making jokes at my expense every time I sort of made any comment on this. And so I thought, well, I'll give it, I'll give it a go. To, he sort of then posted something where he was criticizing an endeavor that someone else had sort of taken to make the circuit mm. better. And I was like, well, I'll, I'll just do the same to him and see what happens. And so I did the same to him and he instantaneously just unfriended me and, mm. uh, and then, and then for a while, he, he sort of disappeared from Facebook altogether. So, like, you know, I think a lot of people are going through a lot of bad times, and like, I think that's the I think that's the problem with comedy. It's sort of hierarchies. There are hierarchies in place which you can't yeah. necessarily see when you first start. And, some, and sometimes people who've gone from being like an open mic level and they start going to a semi professional professional level, they sort of try and differentiate themselves. And sometimes they do that by like schoolyard bullying, and it's like. For me, that 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 kind of thing amuses me, unfortunately. So when people do that stuff towards me, I usually then start to I start to be shitty and act up towards those people, which is not yeah, it's not a good way to get ahead, Graham. <laughs> like it's the worst. No, it's way not. To get no, <laughs> no. But there are some people. I mean, there are some. There are some promoters who who can be very surly and almost sort of but have a, a persona where maybe they're seen as a bit of a bully or whatever. And and there are some some acts who are equally the same. And but then there are also then there's the, the flip side, which are the ones that quite often go unnoticed, who are the ones who are incredibly supportive and and give sound advice. And quite often, the way they do that is they might slide into your DMs and just say to you, "Just watch out for that guy," or "Do this or that." And and that that's the stuff that I sort of cling to is that if you can find a, 
half a dozen people who are really not too faced and really reliable, then you can you can hopefully sort of not cling onto their coattails, but use them as a sounding board and, and whatever. But yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a lot in comedy that's great, but there is a lot that needs to change. And this six months off from gigging or five and a half months off from gigging is a time when a lot of people should should have reflected. I think and the Me Too thing was was certainly an issue. The diversity or lack of it on a lot of bills is is certainly something to look at. And then also just the way we probably all talk to each other. But well, but then yeah. I'll I'll say that. But then I'm sure that later on today I'll be calling somebody a cunt for no reason. So, this, is, this is it. I mean, like, the, the thing is that, like, so with with that with that guy that I gave the example of, he just popped up and kept being a bit shitty towards me. I kind of, I kind of understand that. Like, it's like there's mm. someone who's been going longer than me. They they don't respect my comedy, which is fine. And it's a subjective thing. But like a, a lot of times, you know, I've had it myself where you see somebody who's been going less time than me, and they say something, or they get a gig that I would want, and you go, "Well, why are they saying that?" And you get get these little jealousy pangs and it's a, mm. or it's like oh i should be having that and it's it's not the right way to think and like i try and sort of you know i don't like those i don't like those feelings of myself and i don't like seeing those those behavioral traits in other people so like you know i think it's it's best avoiding it's best like you say having a period of reflection i think personally is positive for the comedy circuit because you know we're like we're all chomp that's the other thing about comedy when you're all always chomping at the bit especially when you've got a full-time day job so you've got a full-time day job and you're just going to work, you're, you're sort of on your breaks, you're sort of trying to book in gigs, and then, like, after the work, you go to the gig, and then you go home, and you get six hours sleep, and then you're up again, and then, mm. like, you know, when you're doing that, you're just constantly on the go, and you're not really thinking about, like, you're not really taking a step back from your life, you're sort of going, well, actually, like, what is, what is my long-term goal? What, what am I actually doing here? Why am I even doing something? You know, I remember once I did, like, um, I did, like, five gigs in a row, um, when I had a full-time job, I had a full-time job, I did five gigs in a row. And by the fifth gig, I basically couldn't even stand up on stage and I was forgetting my own punchlines. And you're like, well, I'm just exhausted here. Like, what am I, you know, yeah. what am I doing this who's for? This, like, who's this benefiting? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's not, it's definitely not benefiting me. It's not benefiting the promoter and it's not benefiting the audience. Cause they're just seeing somebody who's like basically falling asleep at the microphone. So, um, <laughs> I, th- I think, I don't know my, my long-term goals or my goals now. Um, I do want to start gigging again, but I, I want to do it more, maybe not say with like a long i think with a more realistic goal because as i said you can hide in comedy so you can feel that like you're making progress when you're not making progress mm. so i don't think there's i personally don't think that for the majority of people on the circuit there is a lot of money to be earned now there are this is sort of there are going to be winners and losers and everything um in manchester there's a a guy who hasn't been putting on gigs long but he he's basically popped up from basically nowhere and at the, at the moment in time he's currently the the only promoter who's putting on paid gigs in Manchester. So he's sort of like mm. come along and he's doing that. So fair play to him. Um, you know, for me, I am, um, I just like to, I, I like to have fun. I think it's, you can lose sight of the fact that you're there to entertain people. You're there to entertain people, not to sort of like bitch about other people and sort of get upset yeah. and sort of get angry about things. And I think we all lose sight. I think we all lose sight of that. I think we do. We sort of go, Oh, I've got to do this and I've got to impress that person. And I've got to do this, that and the other. It's like, well, how about, you concentrate on just being funny and just having fun with the audience. And I think that that's a much more healthier attitude to sort of take for, for comedy. I mean, like I, I've, I, in the time that I've done comedy, I've helped, I've helped to get one person sectioned. I've, uh, I've, I've talked to people about their suicide attempts or, mm. you know, talk to people about their suicidal like inclinations, you know, it's like, mm. so like comedy can be very detrimental and you can just let it get to you in such a, 
like you say, toxic way. You just sort of, you know, mm. and often. And I wonder if that's the one thing that's been missing from a lot of the conversations over the summer. So a lot of the conversations over the summer have understandably been about a combination of diversity because the Black Lives Matter movement really made people look at how diverse lineups in comedy were, but also then the big one has been the sort of the, the comedy's own version of the Me Too kind of movement. And, and that's been something that's reared its head more than once this summer. Um, again, this week, you know, it's, it's come up again with, um, what's the guy's name? Is it James Veach, is it or something? Yeah, like? James Veach. That was a, a surprise. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the a British guy that's been doing really well in America and then suddenly it appears he's a massive scumbag. Um, you know, obviously things are still ongoing with that, but it sounds like he's he's got he's he's committed some majorly bad shit. Um, and 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 that's been there's been two or three flare ups or whatever of peaks of that movement over the summer. But one thing that hasn't been talked about, I suppose, is and and this is what this podcast is about is the prevalence of people with mental health issues doing comedy. Most people who get on a stage leave, leave themselves bare for laughs and vulnerable most of the people i've come across i'm yet to come across anyone who doesn't describe themselves as having some kind of either previous trauma or mental health issue and yet you know the live comedy association's been been formed during lockdown and has put a great big piece together about me too is there a need for us as an industry to support each other better during mental health crises? I suspect well, I, there yeah. is. It happens think, informally, doesn't it? I think, you know? I, yeah, it does. And I, I actually think I was going to say that the LCA has been set up and I I personally believe that they've been fairly wonderful. Uh, I know mm. that they've got a bit of shtick that people think, well, they're just trying to secure their own positions and maybe they are, but they are also doing things that do help the majority of acts on the circuit. Yeah. And obviously with the, um, with the sexual assault allegations and things like that and the stories that have come forward, they've been like, well, comedy needs a HR department. But I, I also think that comedy needs a, a mental health department. and you know, Kind of a welfare team. Yeah, yeah, they need a welfare team. And I think I think that having like, I think that having resources that people can go to to get, because let's face it, like mental health assistance in this country is is, is rubbish. It's, it's truly yeah. dire. So like, as I said, like I was feeling suicidal. It took me six months to get, seen by a, a yeah. counsellor. Anyone who's waited for help from the NHS and, and my, my my experience was ten years ago and it hasn't got any better. You no. know, I waited months for, for my help. Thankfully I wasn't suicidal, but I waited months and months and I and and the help I got was was uh, pretty bit mediocre really. Um, well, with, and, with, and with it me, hasn't got better, it's probably got worse. Yeah, with me, Graham, like uh the after that six months the foot the day that I was meant to be seeing sort of a mental health professional to discuss my issues I just got a text message from the HS saying, oh, yeah, yeah your appointment's been cancelled with like two hours to go. And I was like, and I just, I phoned the number. Of, I was like, what? I was like, I've been waiting. This has been like, I've been waiting for the chopper to come yeah. and sort of evac me. Like, what is this? Like, and they were like, oh, we'll, we'll get back to you at some point. You're like, gee, I, can't, you know, yeah. I actually just, after, after I calmed down, I started laughing because I'm like, it's just ridiculous. Like you're telling but, people with anxiety and depression that they have to wait, you know. Just yeah, well, yeah. I had a similar thing. I had uh, so I I got prescribed with the antidepressants um, and was told it you know we'll refer you for CBT uh, cognitive behavioural therapy and it'll take the waiting list about three months. This was ten years ago. Yeah, and uh, and then you know three months down the line when basically nothing had improved, the, all the pills had done was um, sort of numbed the edges of my emotional responses to anything at either end of the scale. So I was a bit zombified, um, and. Uh, 
and then I got a, a message through saying that I uh, I hadn't responded to a voicemail that I don't think I'd even heard from a therapist. So I just they just assumed I was better and removed me from the thing. They'd rung me once, left me one voicemail, and I hadn't replied. And I had to kick off and say, well, hang on a minute. You know, one of the symptoms of anxiety and depression is like total detachment from the real world. Yeah. I haven't replied to one voicemail. You've just cut me out of the system and telling me it's now going to be four months again. Before, and and I think that sort of thing is endemic. And 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 like I say, in in the comedy industry, what I see happening, and I know, uh, you know, I'm a small small fish in a big big pond. Um, what I see happening is comedians on Facebook at varying levels of the industry putting out messages now and again that are clear indications that they might be in some sort of distress at varying degrees of and other comedians just informally offering them help, which I suppose is similar to people in their day-to-day lives. But the other thing is, if your sole sole employment is... If I have a problem of mental health, I know that I can go to my HR department at work, at my day job, and get help. Or I can do other things. But if you're someone who lives in isolation and works in isolation, like most self-employed comics may well do, who do you go to? Um, so I think there's certainly work we can do as an industry there. Well, I mean, this is the, this yeah. is one of the the unique traits about comedy is that you're alone. Effectively, you're alone workers. So where's the health and safety yeah. there? Really, you know, there's no health yeah, and safety. Yeah. You know, you you stay at home all day, generally on your own. You go to a gig on your own. You pref- you may meet people there and have a chat, but you're not going to just when you're at a gig. You're it's not quite a cursory just, level, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You're not. Gonna, it's just going to be. Yeah. Oh, hey, mate, how's it going? And you know, I'm I'm quite open with with things that have happened to me. So I saw some comedy friends on Saturday and they were like, Oh, how's it going? I was like, well, I was living with a guy who was like attacking me and things like that. And I'm like, shit. And I'm like, how are you? I was like, well, yeah, I don't, I don't process things quite the way other people do. So this, this guy that I was living with, he attacked me and uh, our other housemate was like, I'm leaving today. I can't stay around that guy. He's, he's really unsafe. And my response to that is, well, he grabbed me around the throat, but he didn't grab me that hard. And he's like, that's you know, <laughs> wow. You know, that's not, you know, so like, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I'll, this is the thing that like, I would generally just sort of tell people things that have happened in my life is just, Oh, that happened. And they're like, that's not, you know, that's not right. It's not that's, normal. You know, yeah. But yeah, that, yeah. That's the thing. Like with comics, especially they just sort of like, they take their trauma and turn it into comedy. So then you just, I find that I just tell people stuff and you just see their faces like drop. Like, what are you, what are yeah. That's horrific. How are you like not in tears about that? And you're like, well, that's just normal, isn't it? And they're like, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, so I like, think you're right as well, though. When when bad shit happens, most people react the same way. But comedians think, where's the, where's the laugh? Where's the punchline? Yeah, working out, you know. Um. So okay. So I mean, we've we've chatted for just over an hour now. It's been okay. it's been really great. Um. And I asked this question at the end to every every guest. Um. And. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me and I, i'm i'm generally confident of the answer but you've said a couple of things that mean i'm not necessarily going to presume this is a slam dunk um so <clears throat> excuse me sorry i'm coughing away it's okay if if i could wave a magic wand aj right and mm-hmm. say to you that after i wave this magic wand your mental health all of the aspects that we've talked about you know your, your sort of negative thought spirals your anxiety disorders even things like your the level of, that you you're comfortable with drinking and so on could be where you want them to be even keel no no massive lows or anything like that and going ahead all positive but the price to pay would be that you'd never get on stage again would that be a deal you would take yes fucking in hell a, you're the first person to say yes <laughs> in a heartbeat in a heartbeat wow. like no uh, like my my depression has you know held me back in various ways even if you take comedy even if you just take yeah. 
my performance in comedy like i you know i have been on stage really drunk i i've you know i've been in mental distress and you know, i have have had other acts like just look at me and go well you're just acting weird and it's like well, yeah i am acting weird so when i see an, yeah. when i see a comic acting weird I, these days i'll generally go well, you know what's wrong you're all right and i'll try and sort of make sure they're okay yeah. but like you know i've had i've had acts sort of like point at me and just, just laugh I love doing comedy, Graham. I love doing comedy, but mm. I also recognize that part of the reason I love doing comedy is because I, I have an aching need for attention. I have an aching need for yeah. attention, a desperation to be accepted. You know, I have these things. If you get rid of that, I don't need comedy anymore. I can still tell jokes mm. to people and it doesn't bother me. But like, yeah, for me, like I, you know, for me, like I have rejection issues. I have things like this. I, you know, I need the attention. So like, yeah, if you get rid of those issues, I definitely don't need comedy because comedy for a lot of people is a, a form of therapy which i've i've used mm. as a form of a form of therapy and as i said then you get into this this terrible cycle of just like yeah it's kind of good but it's also bad it, it kind of helps my problems it also exacerbates my problems in other ways like you know um yeah well congratulations because you're the first 17 episodes and we had a 16 streak of people saying without a doubt no wouldn't do it um so uh that was and i was right to be you said a couple of things and i thought i'm not sure how he's going to go with this one so um but that's that's fascinating and, and in a way that's sad but in a way then i suppose that i'm glad that comedy is able to help you in the way that it does although it seems like it's a double-edged sword so it is a, it's definitely um, a double-edged sword but um yeah as i said i i know a lot of friends who are planning on quitting comedy uh but that mm, mm. That isn't. That's not me. I'm not. I'm not going to quit. Uh, I. Because I, I. Part of me. I, I think it's quite funny that. Um, there are a lot. Of, there are a few people around who are just like. Why do you carry on doing this? I'm like because the longer I do it, the funnier I find it. That's basically it. Like. Um, <laughs> it's kind of. I am basically. I see myself as a practical joke on the circuit. That's basically the way I see myself. So. Um, there we are. Well, listen, it's, uh, I find it, given that you're only in Manchester, it's amazing that we've not gigged together yet. I hope to, to put that right at some point soon. It's been great talking to you. Um, and um, it's been hoping that some of the things we talked about will, will um, get rectified. Yeah, it's been great. And, and thanks for coming on, AJ. Really appreciate it. Cheers. You're more than welcome. Graham, thank you for your time. So there you go. That was episode 17 with AJ Hill. Um, and I think um, we covered a lot of ground. We could have talked even longer, even more about other stuff. And I'm, he's he's one of the a few, a few guests that I've had on that I'd quite happily have on again in the future to, to look at other areas. But again, with this one, it just felt like um, we we focused in on a few key areas that are of the moment. And I think that you know, at the moment in the comedy industry, the, the Live Comedy Association, which is a newly formed sort of self-governing body, stroke union, stroke association, run by acts and promoters, for acts and promoters, have have taken a lot of work on already in other areas, mainly around COVID, but also significantly around um, keeping acts safe from kind of, I suppose, sexual predators would be the right way to 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 phrase that but is there a a big box that we're missing there that hasn't been ticked in terms of mental well-being uh mental health um kind of the general 
um, looking after yourself requirement that a lot of comedians by their very nature won't be necessarily very good at. So I think it, it covered a lot of ground there and actually um, it would be interesting to to pick that up with some other acts and, and potentially even I may try and get someone from the Live Comedy Association to come onto the pod at some point and, and chat through what comedy as an industry can do to look after comedians because although it goes without saying you know without healthy comedians or relatively healthy comedians we're all a bit screwed up let's face it but without comedians that are able to function even after the pandemic the industry will will suffer so um lots of food for thought i hope you enjoyed it please let me know what you think um do like subscribe share keep in touch and uh, if you have any guest recommendations or if you're a comedian who thinks you could add something to the pod, do get in touch. Really appreciate you listening. Take care. Bye. Sparks of Madness is hosted by Graham Rayner and is a Gag and Bone Man comedy production.